We're in Ecclesiastes, second week in Ecclesiastes. Uh, I hated life. Uh, that's this, this statement that uh, probably stands out, right? This is, this is coming from the preacher, the koaleth, the king, the, the one who is wise to speak uh, about uh, these issues of life and death. And, uh, and this is the statement that he makes. I, I think about uh, the, the, the phrase, uh, I, I just thought in my mind, oh, I hate my life. And uh, thought about like memes associated with it. Thought about you know petulant teenagers. This is actually not one that comes uh, from experience in my home that my kids would say this. But you know, think about the the teenager that's asked to clean their room and says, "Oh, I hate my life." Right? Um, uh, that that's one of those phrases that uh, uh, gets thrown around. I, I actually sometimes look for illustrations and memes and that sort of thing. And I, I learned that some people associate this phrase with millennials. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how that fits, uh, but uh, fortunately, when you, when you search this phrase, most of what comes up is, uh, is direction uh, to resources that might help if somebody's actually struggling with depression and with real issues. So it's not just the, you know, this phrase that the petulant teenager would declare, and that's certainly not, that's not what's happening here with the preacher. It's something deeper. Uh, it's something real. One of the things that, that uh, I appreciate about Ecclesiastes is, is uh, the preacher constantly is just speaking from experience as a human being. So it's much less didactic that is teaching here's who God is and here who, here's who we are. It's more uh, inductive, sorry, less deductive, more inductive. Here's my experience of life. And it is, is messy. So I hated life because everything done under the sun was grievous to me. It's also helpful to note that the preacher is a man of great wisdom and experience. So even as he says, oh, it's meaningless or it's vanity or however we want to translate that uh, Hebrew word hebel uh, that here in the ESV is translated as, uh, uh, as vanity. It's this breath. It's this fleetingness. He gives this idea of chasing after the wind. Uh, it would be great exercise to chase after the wind, but you're not going to catch it. I mean, it's, it just, you can't grasp it. It's, uh, it's that vapor, that breath, that thing that we can't get a hold of, even though we want to. This, this preacher who's proclaiming these things, who's saying these things, is a man of great uh, experience and wisdom. So look at just some of the things that he uh, says about himself in these two chapters. Uh, in chapter 1, he's the king over Israel, verse 12. He has seen everything that has been done, verse 14. He's a man of great resource and experience that he can say that. He's, he's not somebody who's, who's uh, hoped for wealth or, or pleasure or wisdom and thinks that that will, uh, that will bring satisfaction. He's actually achieved all of those things. He's acquired great wisdom, surpassing all before him, verse 16. He's had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, again, verse 16. And then in chapter 2, he says, What can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And, and what he's communicating there is he's, he's seen the breadth of human experience. Not every single experience, and we talked about this last week. I mean, there, there are things that will be invented after, but the depth of what we actually experience in the world, he has seen. So it's not some group of college students sitting around in an air-conditioned dorm room who have their meals and housing paid for by their parents saying, oh, it's all meaningless. This is a man with real wisdom and experiencing reflecting on life. So as he pursues meaning, 
as he pursues something beyond the vapor, beyond the vanity, one of the things that he pursues is wisdom and knowledge. We'll take different weeks to look at the different things he pursues, success, uh, pleasure, uh, just work, wealth. And here he's pursuing knowledge and wisdom. We also don't have time to really break out the difference between knowledge and wisdom. We'll just say very briefly that knowledge is the, the knowing of facts and wisdom is the ability to apply them well. So he's lumping them together, though, uh, recognizing that as a creature, passage not read today, but in chapter 8, verse 17, he tells us essentially there's no way that we could begin to know everything that there is. We're the creatures, and God is the creator, and we can't know. So as he pursues wisdom and knowledge, as he experiences it in spades, Beyond what others experience, he comes to this place where he says, I hated life because everything done under the sun was grievous to me. There is what we would describe here as a wise hatred of the brokenness and mess and vanity, the fleetingness of this life and world. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to see wise hatred. The first thing that we're going to look at is the hatred that he has for life and the brokenness, but then he, uh, he speaks to the benefit of wisdom, even as he speaks of the vanity of it. We'll, we'll talk about that. So let me pray, and we'll look at first the hatred and then the wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your wisdom. Amen. Hatred. He has this hatred, so I hated life. This is just consistent with what he's been talking about already. Uh, He talks about pursuing. He applies his heart to seek and search out wisdom. He applies his heart. There there is this very, again, personal and vulnerable expression that would be pretty unprecedented for a king uh, to communicate. Uh, He's he's opening up about his heart and what he has pursued. And as he does that, he, he notes that it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Uh, because, as he goes on to say, we, we can't find the answer. We can't get the ultimate answers that we are looking for. He, he uses this, what, what is probably a proverb uh, that's used at the time, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. What's he communicating here? Crooked is not necessarily this, this moral crookedness. It's that what, what is not able to be understood, so it's lacking, it can't be counted, that we can't get our minds uh, around the way that the world works. Because what he's finding out is it's not karma. We've talked about this before. It's not just you do something good and then good happens, or you do something bad and then bad happens. It's actually much more complicated and messy and ultimately broken than that. So that it can't be fixed, it can't be fully understood, it can't be, uh, the, the deep problems can't be answered. He, he, it's, it's just a vapor, it's just a mist, it's just the wind. He can't actually grab a hold of it and make sense of it. And so he, he finds himself recognizing that it's an unhappy business, that it, that it can't be fully understood, even with just loads of knowledge much more than the preacher standing in front of you has. Uh, He has much more experience and wisdom and knowledge than that. Uh, I I thought of, uh, I've I've, uh, talked before about uh, this guy who does a lot of YouTube videos. His name is Mark Rober, and I've talked about the videos that he does, uh, that he creates glitter bombs. 
uh, and uh, he, he talks about over-engineering this fake package that he puts on porches to be stolen by porch pirates. And when somebody opens it up, a, a glitter bomb explodes. It sprays out terrible smelling spray. Uh, it makes different noises. They can actually speak to them. They have cameras all around so they can show what's happening. Uh, they, they act like the police are coming. Uh, and there's some really humorous uh, uh, videos. Um, and it's also fascinating to see, this guy is a next, an ex-NASA engineer, uh, and to see how he creates this box. There are now three videos, and he's improved the box every time, the, the glitter bomb every time. And, uh, and it's pretty interesting to see how he applies that knowledge to uh, feeling like you get some level of justice as you watch this, right? But if we recognize the reality, one is some people are able to figure it out and then uh, it, it not really have much consequence for them. Um, and then there's also the recognition that the, the glitter bomb packages that are stolen are a very, 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 very small uh, infinitesimal uh, percentage of the packages that are stolen uh, in the world. Because with all of his knowledge and his understanding, he can address these small things, but he can't address the issues of the fact that people steal from people uh, who deserve their packages, right? That there's selfishness in the world that would, uh, would have us steal from other people. This is not something that Mark Rober and all of his knowledge, uh, and he communicates a lot of knowledge. All of his videos are pretty fascinating. But he, he can't answer these deep kinds of questions. And this is what the preacher is, is recognizing. In fact, he's, he's saying in, in verse 18 of chapter 1 that more knowledge, actually, the increase of knowledge only increases sorrow. With much wisdom is much vexation. We realize uh, the more we learn, actually, we realize the more we don't know. And the more that we're uh, experienced sorrow, even. You think about, you, you can scroll through the, uh, any news website and you can increase your knowledge of what's happening in the world, but guarantee your sorrow is going to increase because of the brokenness in the world and certainly the way that, uh, that many, most media organizations are set up to, to bring us news of what is broken and messed up because those are the headlines that draw people in. You, you increase your knowledge, you increase sorrow because the world is not as it should be. It is grievous. It is a chasing after the wind. All is grievous, chapter 2, verse 17. And in chapter 2, he, he notes that wise, foolish, the end is the same for all. So then he's going to the ultimate end of wisdom and foolishness or knowledge. And, and he's saying that what comes for all is the same. Look at verse 14. At the end of verse 14, he's talking about the wise person and the foolish person. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. The same event happens to the wise and the foolish. What, what, what's that event he's talking about? Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Then what's the point, he goes on to say. Why then have I been so very wise? This is also uh, a vanity, a chasing after the wind. For the wise and the fool, verse 16, are, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will be long forgotten. So we're all going to end. How the wise dies just like the fool. What's the end? It, 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 this is uh, just the reality of the world. It's, it's death. And so he's, he's recognizing 
the value of wisdom and foolishness and how that plays out, knowing that what is to come for every single one of us is death. And that's a, a heavy thing to think about. It's, it's heavy for us to, to have to focus on that. And there's some sense which in the pandemic, we have had to think about that more, right? We've had to think about the reality of death and COVID uh, having the possibility of bringing that, and it has for many. For uh, approaching 500,000, is, is that where we are now? I mean, it just keeps increasing, right? And that's just in the U.S. Death is in front of us. You're wearing masks and social distance from one another because you have to come to grips with the reality that death is a possibility. We don't like to, but that is the reality. One of the books that I'm actually going to quote from in a little bit, but um, that I've been reading about Ecclesiastes is called Living Life Backward. And what he's saying is that the writer of Ecclesiastes, this preacher, the Koalath, is, is saying that we have to see all of these things in light of death and then work backwards. And he does believe, as I think the preacher believes, there is hope in that, but that we have to start with that reality, that reality that we try to push away. Now, in the midst of this, uh, he's admitting that this is the experience, and he's hating the mess of the world and this unhappy task, uh, and the fact that all the things that happen under the sun are grievous to him. He's being vulnerable. He's being open, even as the preacher, as the, the leader of the people. But he's not hating God. He's hating the brokenness of life, but he's not hating God. All of this happens in the context that ends with chapter 12, verse 13. We looked at last week. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is where he continually is. And we'll see other passages as well where he acknowledges that, that God is the creator, that we're the creatures. And even when it comes to knowledge, we can't know it all. Chapter 8, verse 17 because only one who can know it all is the creator. We're not going to be able to understand everything. And this should then give us some freedom, actually. Some freedom to recognize that when there are things grievous, that uh, this is the reality of things, that there doesn't need to be a shame that comes over us to admit when, even when we make mistakes or when things go wrong, or even in particular when wrong is done to us. It, it is sad and fascinating and grievous to see that oftentimes when we're sinned against, we're the victims of abuse even, that we become, we, we become filled with shame. And, and part of one of the, the things that the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's, he's drawing us into the mess of the world so that he can then pull us out of that, but that, that we, we have to start there in the reality of the brokenness of what we experience. And that can be difficult. Blaise Pascal is, is quoted here in this, the book that I just referred to. Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and uh, Christian thinker. And this is what he says about just taking time to sit in some of this reality, to, to recognize uh, that there is death in front of us. And there are just all the questions that come with that. Because the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. He's not able to sit first in this moment. Nothing is so unbearable for a man as to be in complete repose without passions, without business, without distraction, without application. And he feels his nothingness, his abandonment, his insufficiency, his dependence, his impotence, his emptiness, 
Incontinent from the depths of his soul, there will arise boredom, melancholy, sadness, sorrow, spite, and despair. Encouraging words. And he goes on to talk about the fact that we just we, we don't like to sit in that place. We distract ourselves. We think about what it means to, to live and, and just uh, entertain ourselves and uh, pursue wisdom, knowledge through all kinds of means or pleasure or work. And to become kings is what we seek to do without thinking what it means to be a king or even a man. And so we're called to, with the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, Proclaiming these things to sit in the sadness of, what, of the life in which we live. But no, I think there is some encouragement here that there is wisdom, even in the hatred. There is wisdom. There is something that is being said here uh, that is true. Again, we'll talk about this again and again. We talked about this last week. That to say that all things are vanity is a statement made that is not vain. It's actually given to give wisdom, to communicate truth. There's something he's trying to communicate. And hating the effects of the fall, hating the grievousness of the things that happen in the world, hating death itself is right and wise. We find this throughout Scripture. Romans 8 tells us that we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation has been groaning. And not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. There is the hope, the adoption, the the being drawn into the people of God. There is the redemption of our bodies, even at death. But first we have to sit in the reality of the groaning. This is a scriptural theme again and again that we must not pass over. In order to get to that point, though, we have to sit in the fact that wisdom and knowledge and pursuing it and our, our high value of education and growing in knowledge, uh, that that is not the answer for happiness, fulfillment, or saving in our lives. Wisdom is vanity, yes, if it becomes the source that we seek to find our happiness, if it becomes our savior, if we think that the answer is more knowledge, if we think that just having wisdom is going to fix our broken lives. And again, one of the challenges for us is to think that a full life comes with education. The value that we put on somebody with the degrees that they might communicate, right? How that plays out in the way that we treat people or think of them. This is foolishness. He also notes that wisdom itself is actually beneficial in this world. It is vanity if it is the thing that we seek to base our life on. If we, if we seek to find salvation in or happiness in wisdom or knowledge, then we lose. But he does say in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. He's saying that as you go through life, it's better to be wise than foolish. There, there is something beneficial here when we are applying the, even the kind of wisdom that he's saying here, that the end is coming, that there are implications for even the way that we think about wisdom and knowledge. It is not where our hope lies, though. 
Jesus echoes the same idea, even as he is the one who is the most wise. I mean, this is, he actually addresses this in Matthew chapter 12, when he has noted that he is greater than the temple. And that's a big deal for him to say that at the time. He's greater than the prophet Jonah. And then he gets to chapter 40. Chapter 12, verse 42, and he notes that he is greater than Solomon, the one who would have been understood as the most wise in all of history. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, many believe, is Solomon. So here Jesus is, the one who is God himself. He is wise. And he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark eight thirty-six. Thinking less of yourself because you're comparing yourself to people who have more education or even just more knowledge or who are even smarter than you. And I find myself in that position a lot, interacting with people who are are, are smarter. And if I begin to value myself or others as a result of those comparisons, then we're being foolish. We're missing the mark. Become either prideful because we compare ourselves to others that uh, have more education than or are smarter than, Or we think less of ourselves because we compare ourselves and find ourselves wanting. That is foolishness, he says. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. So he ends. Jesus recognizes this reality. The one who is all wise recognizes the reality of death and its effect on wisdom and salvation. And what Jesus does is he enters into the world in which he will himself die. And and true wisdom is embracing that reality, is embracing that person, embracing that embodiment of wisdom itself, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do. That's where we're encouraged to go. Going through the mess of the grievous work that we have to do to try to figure out the world that we're never going to figure out in the ways that we want to, we find the solid, the foundational Jesus Christ who himself dies for us, that we celebrate at the table, his death, the fact that that's where he went. That's where we head.